My name is Shannon Verouge, and my topic is helping our teens be rooted in identity in Christ. I am a licensed professional counselor in Portland, Oregon, and I'm running my own practice called Pristine Counseling. I was privileged to attend Western Seminary in Portland, where I got my master's degree in counseling, and then had the amazing opportunity to have Tara Matson, our main speaker for this event, as my clinical supervisor at Living Wholehearted in Tualatin. Those were four rich years where I became a trauma-informed counselor. My husband and I have three beautiful, very unique boys, and we are raising them outside of Portland near the Columbia River Gorge. Uh, we have a beautiful waterfall about 15 minutes from our house. It's called Multnomah Falls, and it's 620 feet tall, and it's just amazing out there. We love being in the Pacific Northwest, and I think there's something so healing um, with the work that I do. I love getting to be around um, the healing nature of nature. So I love, I love the setting that God has put me in, even though there are quite a few rainy days here in Oregon. It's, it's a blessing to be in such a rich environment. So my kids are not teens yet, but I have worked with youth uh, as a youth leader for several years, and the majority of some of my work has been with teens. And these are definitely confusing yet exciting times for them. And so it's such a privilege and an honor to walk alongside them. I always tell my teenage clients, um, what are your goals? <laughs> I like to start with what are their goals, as I have found if I set goals for them, that could be somewhat helpful. If their parents set goals for them, that can be somewhat helpful. But if they really set their own goals, they tend to engage um, more with the process of therapy. So I see a, a variety of clients in my office. I start with ages three on up and some of the issues that are covered that come up specifically with teens is um, finding the ability to name their emotions, to deal with grief and loss, to deal with major transitions like divorce and moving uh, and school changes. I see teens who are dealing with identity issues, trying to figure out who they are, trying to figure out their worth. Um, teens dealing with anxiety and depression. And then I also see adult women healing from abuse, codependency, learning to cope with anxiety and fear in healthy ways, and couples wanting to work on communication. So I really like a variety of people and situations and problems, um, but there is a special spot in my heart for teens. So I love that I get to talk on this subject. So to get things started, I thought I would just start with... Um, what pristine counseling means. So the reason I picked that for my business name is I found working with clients that have gone through abuse, part of the work and trauma, part of the work that we're doing is trying to uncover their truest identity. Who, who were they before the abuse, before the stress? Um, it's like God has a unique fingerprint he puts on each person and we have different aspects of our of our character we have different giftings we're wired differently and so part of the work that I love getting to do is trying to help clients uncover that and then the deeper work I would say for all of us as Christians is to uncover our truest identity so my tagline is building identity last on truth. So there's so many things we can 
build our identity on that aren't lasting, that crumble. And I think more than ever with what's going on today, people, we can find (laughs) what we've maybe put our hope in um, to give us identity, to give us purpose. And some of those things are crumbling. We're seeing that um, with economics that go up and down, sports events that have been canceled. So like my athletes, clients, a few weeks before everything was canceled, I remember speaking with a young gentleman and I had just been encouraging him. He was a teenager to make sure he's not only fostering fostering his gifts in the sport he was um, excelling at, but also f- learning more about his identity in Christ. And I said, God forbid you get injured someday and you don't have this uh, ability to use Making sure that your identity continues to grow in Christ is going to give you a solid foundation. So for today's talk, I want to lay the foundation for identity and the building blocks for it. First, I believe in Christ, our identity should start with knowing that Jesus is our advocate. He stands on our behalf. Secondly, we are hurt by others and healed and experience love from others, so we need each other. The main verse I'm basing this talk off of is 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. This, of course, involves our (laughs) buy-in. Right, God, we hear a lot of talk about we're all God's children and I believe we are all made in the image of God. Um, We are special because we are made in his image but to become his child we have to opt into that and that involves as Romans 3 23 says um, admitting that we're we all have sinned um, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and when we confess that and we want to follow Jesus. We want a new life. We repent. We're saying, I want to turn from my sin. So John, John the Baptist preached a message of repentance, of wanting to turn and change and obey the teachings of God because we love him and he is the authority in our life. This takes humility. I do not know which way is best for me and so I trust him and this for sure is a process not a destination and this has been so true of my own life learning to trust God as father and when people have had woundings and abuse and an unhealthy earthly father there's going to be troubles in seeing God as a good father and trusting him and so again this is a process The importance of our truest identity being in relationship to God as Him as our Father and us as His daughters is such a big truth because this can become our foundation. This can be where we find our truest sense of identity. It's in a relationship that can't be thwarted. So my kids, my sons, right? They, we've heard this before, but they can do naughty things. They can do bad things, but they are my sons because of our relationship. And the same is true of us as God's children when we opt in to having him as our father. And I love that this verse says, 
therefore you are. So that's a declaration. So again, it says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Sometimes we need that declaration spoken to us by somebody else because we don't believe it. So this verse is not saying we have to feel loved. We have to feel like his child. It's just declaring what is true. And again, we all need that at times. Someone to to declare who we truly are despite how we feel. One of the enemy's weapons against our identity is to condemn us, to say we are all bad. Who we are is the problem. We are worthless. We will never change. We are without hope because of the patterns and habits and hang-ups and hurts that we get stuck in. And this is a lie. This is a lie and it's a dangerous one because if I mess up as a wife, a mom, or a friend and believe I'm a bad wife, I'm a bad friend, I'm a no good mom, I'm likely not going to try to work harder to become better at the at these roles that I carry or to share what I've done um, with others, fear of their judgment. And I'm likely not going to ask for help or mentorship in these areas. The label of bad gives me permission to give up, to remain acting poorly. And, and also, it allows me to wallow in hopelessness, which is not a good place for anybody to be. So we need to be aware that the enemy, and I see this with teens all the time, they have hurtful experiences, they're left out of friendships. Um, it's such a delicate time because teens are figuring out how to do relationship and inevitably there's going to be so much hurt that that comes um, from others and so this is an area that they get attacked in heavily true guilt I want to talk about the difference between um, the enemy tries to condemn us and tries to tell us that we're all bad whereas true guilt moves us towards feeling unsettled it's trying to move us towards a to a place of seeking repair, of restoration. So as a child of God, if I am sinning, I should feel like a fish on a camel's back. I was not made to do sinful actions, to treat people poorly. And so there should be an unrest that I feel in my soul, a conviction from the Holy Spirit. But this isn't to condemn me, to declare me guilty uh, forever. This is there to help to prompt me to return back to confessing it to God and he says he will cleanse me from all unrighteousness when I confess it and it restores me to a, a right relationship with God with others and with myself but this again involves humility but it is a place um, of confessing where we experience grace peace and a sweet release sometimes there is something truly wrong, a pattern, a habit, an old unhealthy coping strategy that we need to confess over and over again and continue to fix and address. But we do not have to fight that alone. We can get others to help us. And so we need to break, we need God's help to break that shame, that lie that says that we are bad. Because again, the toxic shame tries to attack our identity. But when we are in Christ, we are his daughter. So we can say, I am God's daughter. And because I am his daughter, these behaviors that are not pleasing to him are not pleasing to me. And I need, I want to get help. I want to address them. 
So for example, there, there might be people that are struggle, struggle with pornography and they are called to confess that to God, but also they might need to confess that to others for growth. They might need to go to counseling to do their own work, to uh, uncover wounds, to have accountability, to have blocks on their phones and computers because they are fighting to become uh, someone who reflects more and more of the image of Christ. And so again, I'm not saying to ignore our sin, to ignore our shortcomings, but I'm. it's a call to address keeping intact who we truly are at our core of our identity, a loved child of God, while on the other hand, still knowing that there's going to be sins, there's going to be things that we need to address, but we don't have to address them alone. We can share with others what's truly going on inside of us. And you might be wondering, why am I talking so much about um, about kind of saying for ourselves, we need to do this for ourselves? It's because the work that we do is going to impact our kids our, who become teens or already are teens or the other teens in our life. And so I wanted to really start my session off with addressing some things for us to be mindful as, as well. So again, this would be my first hope for a young adult. Number one, to know that Jesus wants to be their advocate. He knows about their shortcomings and he wants to stand in their defense and declare them not guilty. So 1 John 2, 1 says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate, the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Right? He stands on our behalf. Number two, they can experience Jesus with skin on by being involved intimately with others who follow Jesus from a variety of age groups. This is how we are able to live out the scriptures of love one another, confess your sins to one another, bear one another's burdens, right? All of those scriptures point to an idea that we are in community. So the big goal for teens, again, for for them to know that Jesus is their advocate, that he stands on their behalf, that they are in relationship with other followers of Jesus, seeing this as a vital for their growth. So a teen is going to understand um, by seeing other people struggle and confess their own sins that it's okay to talk about things and be real. There was a Barna Barna study that was done on millennials that stayed in the church and they found that 59% who stayed were connected to an adult in the church. And so I think this is important to know again that we need each other and those those relationships that can form within the church. So having a teen who really looks up to their youth leader or a teen that looks up to um, an aunt-type figure or a big sister-type figure or a grandma-type figure. All of those things can happen within the context of community. Another goal I would say for a teen is to know, for them to know the word. So this would be ideally someone who is armed for the battle ahead because they know the word. They understand not just the general themes and the big picture takeaways, but they actually read the words. They know, they not just know the big picture stories, um, but they're in the text. The reading of the word will transform us. So in our generation, right, we have so much information going around. There's TED Talks, 
there's YouTubers, there's so much information, so many amazing podcasts and books, and those are vital and they have a place. But the Word of God is the only thing that I know of that promises that it will renew our mind and transform us from within. So, for example, if someone just, a teen just hears, like, don't have sex, right? Uh, That's the big picture theme. But if they are able to have discussions and to digest and to meditate on a scripture such as 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 6, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this manner no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. So right there, right, we can tell a teen, hey, don't have sex. Or we could say, hey, let's look at the scripture together. What do we see? Um, what do we we see in the scripture? What stands out to us? And right here we're talking, we have so many more avenues to talk about controlling our bodies. We could talk about where have we seen or heard in, in our media or even in our schools and in our families where someone didn't control their body. They didn't control their desires and it actually damaged or hurt someone. Um, the goal of avoiding sexual immorality from this verse is also talking about not taking advantage of a brother and a, or a sister. So it just gets a little more complex and, and gives the teen something their teeth can actually dig into versus just another rule. It also, when they know scripture, it's going to help prepare them that there's going to be good days and there's going to be bad days ahead. So knowing the promises of God and, and God and the warnings that he lays out will help them understand that he does have a plan to address evil and injustices in the world. We're not at the end of the story, even though we look around and we see the despair and um, the futility and all the hurt. We can, if we if we know God's word, we can hear His whole plan for how He's going to address every wrong and how He's going to wipe away every tear that we carry. Another goal would for the team would for them would be for them to have an eternal hope, to understand a biblical and accurate view of heaven, to know that one day all pain, suffering, and grief will be left lifted no matter what they are going through today or will go through in the future. So Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Wow, what assurance to be able to hold on to that and to let that scripture grow within them as they grow up and and face their own adversities. Um, So again, for this to be true of our daughters, of our sons, um, for these things we want for them, first it should be true for us. And I realize many of you might be acting as a quote-unquote parent and being a mentor and having spiritual children and that's beautiful but this work needs to first ideally begin with us for for teens to believe us to follow us to see it lived out in our own life that's going to be a stronger testimony than than our words alone you may be thinking i have been hurt by people i can't be part of a growth group or a women's group 
I will only get hurt more. Maybe you like the idea of starting in your own um, courageous girls group, but there's so much fear there. I want to encourage you that you can start small, to ask God to give you the desire to want to be around others and to realize healthy trust can start small. If we give someone a teaspoon of trust and they handle it well, we can give them a tablespoon and so on and so forth. This can be a gradual process. For the past three years or so, we've had a growth group in our own home. I had months of feeling uh, unsettled about the idea. As a counselor, I hear so many stories of uh, people that broke trust with others and traumas and being a mom of such young children. I was unsettled with the idea of having strangers come into my home, even though they were quote unquote Christians. I had to talk with my husband about this. We had to pray about it and make sure we had some good boundaries in place so that we did feel comfortable inviting people that we didn't know um, into our home for a Bible study. And Sometimes maybe things happen, like someone offered to watch our, at our old Bible study we were in, someone offered to watch our kids right away. We had only known them for about a month, and we just kind of kindly said, we kindly declined, because it, we just felt like it wasn't enough time. We were able to bring healthy boundaries um, into these relationships so that we could actually form relationship, and fear didn't block us from relationships. And I'll also say there was some... Um, you know, rubbing together of different personalities. So at first when we were establishing our growth groups, I remember we had one kind of challenging conversation with a couple that we were going to be starting it with. And and we worked through that. And so I'm not saying it's all going to be rosy to work with people. It often is messy. But um, the, the messiness is worth the outcome, I would say, at least in our experiences. And the beautiful thing that I've seen happen in our home is as we've we've invited people to gather, some have been in their 20s through 80, their 80s, and our kids have been able to see their mom and dad pray together with others, to share food with others, and confess our shortcomings and sin to one another. And I'm not saying this to brag, it took us a long time to get here, but it was God's work in us that allowed us to get here. So again, I just want to encourage you if you are not modeling having others in your life to maybe pray about how God would have you to start to open that door. The next point is to model what you want them to be. So social modeling is the number one way we learn as humans. It's from seeing and watching um, those around us and that's how we learn. So if we the parent or model can model what we want our teens to do, this is our starting point to build trust with them. We are not asking them to do something we ourselves are not willing to do or disciplining ourselves to do. So for example, I have had teens share with me, the adults in my life tell me to get off my phone, but they're constantly on their phone and have no limits with their phone. So they feel the hypocrisy there. Or I've heard, my mom doesn't want me to watch certain shows because she says they are inappropriate. But I know what the bo- the books that she reads are way more inappropriate. So again, that inconsistency. One team, um, this is a quote from them. They said, when adults lead with words but not by example, it's less effective. You see them as authority figures structuring, instructing instead of living their own lives. The great things about my teachers, this teen happened to have 
been on a retreat and was referring to their teachers, is that they are always learning, developing, and growing. And I'm inspired to follow that example. Parents are an authority, and we can lord our power over teens or offer guidelines and boundaries while still being vulnerable ourselves. I'm not advocating for treating your teen as your as your counselor, right? That's not healthy. But when we feel led, it is okay to share with your teen ways you are overcoming current challenges in your own life, ways that you are learning to deal with lies um, and how you are over dealing with your big emotions. This can help, again, give your teen a roadmap for when they have trouble and need help. They can follow your, your lead. Kids and teens are watching us, and this doesn't mean we have to pretend to be perfect or that we want to hide, but it also can help us call call us into a higher sense of accountability and help us want to grow in areas we have been needing to. Um, and our love for them can be that extra motivation that comes from having them. <laughs> if you mess up or have messed up, own it. Say you're sorry. Show them you are adding more guardrails to have more change in your life. Don't get stuck in toxic shame that will say things like, how can I encourage her to guard her purity when I didn't? This this lie tries to take away the parent's role of lovingly instructing and admonishing, warning their child, right? Just because we've messed up doesn't mean that our voice gets to be taken. The enemy, Satan, wants to tell us that, that... But that is not true. If we love someone, we admonish them, we warn them. If there's a house on fire and the people don't know there's a fire on their roof, right? Their job is to warn, um, to tell. Now, it's going to be up to those people to leave the house or the timing of how they leave the house. If they want to grab a few more items or however long it takes, that part's on them. But our job as parents, as role models, as teachers is to warn because that is love. Michael Dye, a counselor and author of a workbook for growth called The Genesis Process, gives this definition of a healthy person. And I really like this, this, this definition. And again, it's not to shame anyone who's not meeting all of these. But I think this is a good goal for all of us to grow into this type of person. So he says, um, a person who is healthy has no current secrets. They're resolving problems, identifying fears and feelings, keeping commitments to meetings, prayer, family, church, people, goals, and self, being open, being honest, making eye contact, reaching out to others, increasing in relationships with God and others, and accountability. In summary, this definition of health is not a perfect person, but a person who has been hum- has humbly realized their own ongoing need to connect with God and others for their growth. This, along with self-reflection and accountability, can lead to more integrity. When a person's heart's convictions are not being lived out, right, they're going to feel that disconnect. And when they're intentions match their actual actions there's just going to be more peace and integration that starts to happen and again our lives are not cured but they're managed in healthy ways by applying these two verses as well john 15 4 abide in me and i in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine so neither can you unless you abide in me We abide in Christ when we spend time with Him and His people. 
Then we are able to see the results of the second scripture, Galatians 5.22. But the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So again, being with God, being alone with God, being amongst His people, having accountability, having this growth process, this reflection, letting God examine us um, to prune us, it should produce the fruit of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control, all of these things we want for our own life and for the teens and the young people around us to have as well. Let's look at specific factors about the teen life stage that can help us have more understanding for them and how their identity is being formed. So one model I like to use comes from a psychologist called Eric Erickson, and he came up with these eight life stages that he believed we all go through at certain ages of our life and kind of help build a foundation for each next step that we face. So the first one is called trust versus mistrust. And he says this happens for infants all the way to 18 months. And he said the goal of this stage is for them to develop trust. And they do this by having a dependable caregiver. So if their caregiver is there for them, they are going and their needs are met. They are going to internalize that they are in a world that can be safe, where they can trust. And if their needs are not met then they're going to also internalize that and feel like the world is could be a scary place where they can't always trust. The second stage is autonomy versus shame. This is 18 months to three years. And the main question of this one is, can I do things on my own? At this point in development, children are just starting to gain a little independence. They're starting to perform basic actions on their own and making simple decisions about what they prefer by allowing kids to make choices and and gain control, parents and caregivers can help children develop a sense of autonomy. The next stage is initiative versus guilt. Three years old to five years old, children begin to assert their power and control over the world through direct play and other social interactions. So they might say, hey, do you want to play with me? This is helping them to feel in control, be able to initiate, have that confidence. The next one is industry versus inferiority. This is age five years old to 13 years old. So through social interactions, children begin to develop a sense of pride in their accomplishments and abilities. Children who are encouraged and commended by parents and teachers develop a feeling of competence and belief in their skills. So really in in this age, think of the, the elementary, middle school years, we're really wanting to speak life into our kids. We're wanting to say, hey, I see that you're, you worked really hard out there on the soccer field. You really gave it your whole effort or wow, tell me what you like about your this artwork that you made. I see all the different brilliant colors you use. What is your favorite? We're wanting to just kind of help point out their abilities, their strengths. The next stage is identity versus role confusion. And he says this is from age 13 to 21 years old. So this stage takes place during the turbulent teenage years. At this stage, um, it's essential for teens to maybe try out different things. They might try out different fashions. They might um, be interested in philosophy or researching other religions, and, and that can be okay. 
as long as, again, right, we still are allowed to instruct them and teach them in the way that we would hope that they can go, but they they can explore with things that are not going to impact their safety. A way I've heard this put is um, uh, somebody's teen wanted to try out a mohawk, and the dad went ahead and said, okay, you can try that out. He wasn't going to put up a big fight about that because he knew um, his son was just wanting to try a different kind of hairstyle. But during this stage, Erickson said, this is where the teen learns about more of who they are um, versus being confused. When psychologists talk about identity, they are referring to all the beliefs, ideals, and values that help shape and guide a person's behavior. Completing this stage successfully leads to fidelity. And this was according to Erickson. And then the next stage is intimacy versus isolation. And so if someone has a solid sense of self, then it was said that it would the next stage would be for them to find um, intimacy. And that is not just like marital intimacy. That is also someone could be single and also doing well at this stage if they are allowing others to know them well. So a single person living amongst others but allowing them access to who they really are, their hopes, their fears, their dreams could be said to be completing this stage well versus someone who's isolating from others. And the stages go on and on. I encourage you to, to look at them. Uh, some of them are, are very interesting. And we can, the good news about this is we can miss one of these steps, but we can go back and God can bring healing to these experiences. So for example, if we did not have um, trust established with our main caregiver, right? God can use a friendship or a mentorship to rebuild that that trust point. So the key point is being a consistent person with your private and public actions. This will show your team they can trust you. Shrinking integrity gaps through community, not doing it alone, is the goal, not perfection. So again, shrinking, shrinking those integrity gaps through being honest. So again, your teen seeing you uh, talk to your friend about something that you're struggling with. A, your teen knowing that maybe you're going to counseling um, to get more skills, right? All of this is going to be healthy modeling for the teen. Offering your teen small amounts of independence will show that you trust them to make the right choice choices away from you. So start small with this. Give them a teaspoon of trust. If they handle that well, give them a tablespoon. For example, you you might say, you can hang out with your guy friends and girlfriends. If I know where you are going, know who, who will be a general supervisor, someone around an, another adult, and um, knowing when you're going to come back. So that could be good for a teen to hear versus saying, no contact with the opposite sex ever till you're 35, right? That just feels like a, a really big rule. And our goal is not to shelter, 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 and then release them when they're, <laughs> when they're 25, 35. Our goal is to slowly help them to launch. And this is going to happen. They're going to build that self-esteem by, by being in situations where they do have to use their wisdom, their judgment, and they are going to make mistakes. 
But that's where we get to act like the hospital and help patch them up, hear from them what they learned from the experience, experience and send them out again. So, for example, going along with this theme as well, you might say, uh, hey, we, we're going to consider getting you a laptop because we see you treat ours with respect and are managing the websites you go to well. And please note with electronics that the research just shows us how addicting all of our devices are, especially for the teen brain. So 99.9% .9 of the time, I would say teens are going to need our help with setting limits with this area. But again, we can validate the teen by saying, hey, I see what websites you're going on. I see your technology usage time and you're doing awesome so why don't we get you your own and again it's not without the supervision or reevaluating, but it's allowing its permission it's giving them permission affirm their growths and giftings so for example for this one you might say yes your friend Sally is good at math and science and we are happy for her for that but don't compare yourself to Sally because you might not be the greatest at math and science, but you are great at making relationships, being a loyal friend. You are a good listener. You have great social skills. So the main message we want to send is you don't have to be Sally. You are not Sally. You also do not have to hate Sally for being good at what she is good at, but you can celebrate. We can celebrate Sally's gifts and talents and your gifts and talents affirm who they are and have been do not focus on the negative behavior and let that define them for example if if a teen makes a poor choice we don't want to label them um, I can think of a case where the teen made some really poor choices around using marijuana and so I've worked with this family on seeing their son as a child of God as a son of God because he has opted into that relationship with God versus a pothead a lazy guy um, and what what it's done by not labeling him and him not sensing that judgment from his parents of course we've had a there's there's had there's been talks about boundaries and limits and um, rules but also talks about drawing him out, seeing him for who he is, who God's made him to be, speaking over him, his gifts, his talents, um, his abilities, his their hopes for him, um, spending time with him, inviting him to go fishing, inviting him to go on hikes, right? This has been essential to the work that we're doing um, for him to believe that he is loved and valued. So one skill, and I'm not going to go into this too deep because I'm going to give Link an example. There should be a way for you to access this resource. You can go to www.pristinecounseling.com and I will have it there or um, it should be available however you're accessing this recording. recording. But I use this skill with about... 90% of the people I work with and it's called nonviolent communication or compassionate communication and the whole idea behind this is that 
if a conversation with our teen or anyone, our, our spouse, our partner, our friend, starts with name-calling, blaming, or shaming, it's likely going to not end well because we're, we all can be defensive. And so what this model does, it helps give instruction to have assertive communication, not passive communication, not aggressive communication, but assertive communication. And I love it because it kind of drives drives out the needs and help once we know what our needs are all of communication is about getting needs met and so if we know what our needs are then we are able to articulate our requests better and and communicate with others better so for example if a baby cries right its need is for comfort a diaper change food and if an, an adult is yelling, right, they might have a need to be heard. They're not using a good means for that. And so it's important for us to know what our needs are. So with, um, I'm just going to give you a quick example. So with nonviolent communication, the goal is to first name what we've noticed. If we talk about what we, we've noticed, we're less likely to name, call, blame, or shame. Then we want to talk about how we feel about the situation. The next one is... We want to throw in a request there. So what are we requesting? What is the change we're hoping to see? And then number four, what is our hope? I kind of added this one, but what is our hope um, for the relationship? So for example, I'm going to read this to you, how a parent might use this. It might sound pretty wordy. Once you get the skills down, you can definitely shorten it, but I'm just going to read you this example. So the parent might say this, for this is what I've noticed. It seems your friend Colleen does not have your best interest in mind. When I reflect on the choices she has encouraged you to make and your willingness to participate in these choices, this is how I feel. I feel concerned uh, for you because you have so many areas of your life that are going well, and I'm feeling like this relationship is not benefiting you, although I do see that you care for Colleen deeply and have bonded with her. I also am concerned for Colleen because as her friend, by you going along with these choices, it seems you are not being a good influence on her as well. This is my request. You take ownership for your choices and come up with a plan of how you can avoid the things that have gotten you into trouble. If I do not see a change in your actions in the next two weeks, I will ask that you take a break from this really friendship for her sake and your sake. But if you both show me you can make wise choices well together, she will still be welcome to come over here, but with more supervision. This is my hope for you, is that you know we are here to help you and understand that you have some hard choices ahead of you, but you have been doing a great job protecting what is important to you thus far, and I believe you can continue to make good choices. And then maybe you tell them too, like, hey, I don't want to be supervising you guys 24-7. That's not fun for me either. So if I see that you guys are making better choices, I'm going to lighten up on that. So that would be one way to use nonviolent communication versus saying something such as, I cannot believe you're hanging out with Colleen. You know she has trouble. Her whole family has trouble. I don't know. I do not want you to see her again. She's taking you down. And you are much too good to hang out with a person like that. Yikes. <laughs> if I used a response like that with my team, teen, I'm lacking empathy. 
And I have likely made my teen want to protect and defend Colleen even more. I mean, remember, Colleen is the person that has been a good listener to her, has invested time in her, um, has understood her. By me acting judgmental and making just Colleen the bad guy instead of acknowledging my own teen shortcomings, um, it's going to likely make my teen want to rescue Colleen and hide her her and their actions from me because of fear of harsh judgment. And again, sometimes it's okay. We'll talk about that at the end. Sometimes it's okay to put your foot down, but I'm talking about, um, let's say this, this is like a newer friendship and, um, there's nothing extremely destructive. It's just, there's some signs that these friends might not be the best influence. And so trying to guide that and offer them a chance to repair that and make better choices versus just cutting the person out completely. So some other ideas to help support your teen, ask them what their values are. And you can simply do this. If you go online, there's value sheets you can find for free and you start with about 60 values, um, so things that they value, um, being honest, being trustworthy, independence, all these different words, and then you ha- then you tell them, okay, I want you to pick from this list of 60, what are your top 20 values? And then you tell them, okay, now that you have 20, what are your top 10? And then when they have narrowed it down to 10, say, what are your top five? And this can be a great way to just see what's already in your teen. A lot of times our teens have already thought things through that we might not have realized that they've already thought through. And so giving them a chance to articulate and tell us what their values are versus saying, hey, I want you to be more responsible. Hey, I want you to be more and more and more of this, this, this can help them feel empowered for them to name what they value and, um, and why it's important for them. I wanted to go over a couple of these. Um, Dr. Daniel Siegel has written this about the teen brain. He's a Harvard-trained psychiatrist, and he just really helps break down brain science in, in an easy way to understand. So he says the teen brain obviously is not done maturing. We know that it's not until about age 24 that our brains are fully mature. But a fact about the teen brain from Daniel Siegel is that the teen brain experiences rewards at the highest level. So the University of California did a study and they found that the teen's brain's pleasure centers lit up way more than the adult brain when the teen received money or anticipated receiving money. So Daniel says the upside of this is that the teen will seek out new experiences with positive rewards. The downside is they will seek out new experiences with consequences. Brain With the brain not being fully developed, right, that can be pretty scary. So a way to encourage your teen could be to help them have novel experiences that give a feel-good payoff for their brain that don't have those high consequences that we that um, that we don't want them to experience because it could be dangerous. So, for example, you could make your house the fun house, offer games, experiences that excite the teen brain. Let's set up a slip and slide. Let's do water balloon fight, uh, water balloon fights. Let's um, let's have karaoke. Let's have foosball. Um, I was I felt fortunate enough that I had a, a, 
a friend in my friend group who her parents really understood this philosophy and they kind of thought well if if our teens are going to be wanting to have these fun experiences why don't we make our home the fun for teens and they actually designed some areas of their home specifically for teens and it, it totally worked we spent so much time there um and i'm not saying you have to have a lot of ton of money to do this but getting a little creative and just even taking the time to think what would be fun for the teenagers to do um can really help encourage teens to feel welcomed in in your space Another fact from Daniel is that this is going to be a time where teens seek engagement. The upside of this is bonding. They're going to want to bond and make relationships, learn how to to handle conflict, uh, deal with betrayal, um, deal with learning with what is good and healthy about relationships, learning to have other person perspective. So for this one, I would say... As your teen is experiencing new relationships, it's important to help encourage other person perspective. So and we want to listen to them for sure. So let's say, for example, Stacy really hurt our teen daughter. We want to hear what Stacy did. We want to validate, wow, it sounds like Stacy really broke your heart or that was really embarrassing that she said that in front of everyone. So we want to meet them in the part of their brain that processes the emotions we want to validate that space and what this is going to do is actually calm down the brain before we take them to our logic but it's important to give them that logic and other person perspective so when it's ready we could say hey you know sounds like Stacy's really mad at you and that's been really hurtful and you listen well there and then when the time is right you might say something like I wonder if I wonder how you treated Stacy after she said those hard things. I wonder what you told her. And you might uncover that your teen was actually harsh back to Stacy, right? And then that needs to be addressed. Um, you might have to kindly remind your teen of when they have done exactly what Stacy did to them. And again, this is after you've listened very well, and you're going to need the Lord's discernment on this. Um, but what we're, what you're doing is you're helping not to create this victim rescue mentality where Stacy's the bad guy and you're going to rescue your teen, but you're you're bringing humanity into it. You're helping your teen see that we are broken people and that Stacy has brokenness and you're going to sit and hear about Stacy's brokenness with her, but you're not going to exclude the fact of the reality that your own teen has brokenness and sinfulness and that that will need to be addressed because sometimes your kid will be the Stacy and you want that parent or mentor to not just rescue uh, Stacy and call your kid or, or the teen that you're mentoring the bad girl or the bad guy. You want, um, you want them to have a fair chance. Okay, let's look at one more of these. Another fact is that teens are going to have increased emotional intensity due to hormonal changes. So here's a quote. Intense hormone, intense emotion may rule the day, leading to impulsivity, moodiness, and extreme, sometimes unhelpful, reactivity. <laughs> I think it's funny that he says, calls it reactivity. I know, drama, <laughs> craziness, the crazy train, right? There's other words we can call it, but I kind of like this reactivity. Um, 
and doesn't put a negative label on it. So the good side, he says about this, is emotional sensitivity can increase compassion for others and advocacy. So how can we help our teens that are being really reactive? First, we can help educate them about um, hormones and what the the role they play in the body. I know I have some teen girls that like to track their periods. Their moms have actually helped them to track their periods and learn, um, okay, that time is coming. And during that time, you let them define it. They might say, I'm more tearful or I'm more moody or sensitive, right? We don't have to say, hey, it's your period, so you're just acting like blah, blah, blah. But say, hey, um, you know, I wonder how close you are to your period. What have you noticed emotionally for you when you are on your period? And helping them to define that and build that awareness. Another thing that can be helpful is encouraging our teens to journal. There's so many, um, if your kids like teens like pen and paper, that's a great way. Having them have a private journal, and I would encourage that. Let them know it's private. Do not read their journals. As tempting as that is, you do not want to know what's in there. <laughs> as Tara has said, our e, take the E off emotion, and you have the word motion. So it's not fair for us to, <laughs> to read their journals when they hate us, right? Knowing that they're activated, and they will come down, and they will hopefully go back to loving us. And so um, we don't have to react to their most highest negative point. Um, let, letting them have that space to journal and, and track and see the movements and shifts is their own work. Some teens have also been informing me, my clients, that there's a lot of apps that do this now. So there's a lot of um, apps where they the teen can help track their emotions. They have fun emojis and kind of online journaling and they can even have graphs and charts and uh, and see the changes for themselves. So I think that's great. I'm going to go over a few pitfalls for teens when it comes to forming their identity and how to help them through this. So these are the things that the the teen might actually choose that harm their identity. So the first one is early sexual relationships. So we know that when we have sex that there's a bonding hormone oxytocin that is released and it it reinforces bonding so attaching to another person and think about this so if a teen is figuring out their identity who they are and then they're engaged in sexual activity they're going to feel likely that their identity is in that relationship is with that other person and so that is a pitfall that teens can do that impact their identity and I will say the majority of high schoolers do not have a boyfriend or girlfriend, but because there are people that, peers that do have boyfriends and girlfriends, they can feel very sensitive to not having one. And so as a parent or a teacher, a mentor, you can be mindful of this by being aware of trigger times for singles. So when a dance comes up, when it's Valentine's Day, maybe there's ways you can help encourage your teen to value groups, to value all people, and come up with creative ideas around these specifically triggering days where single people kind of feel 
their singleness is highlighted. So teach them to be their own Valentine. Um, I think girls, girls, I, me and my girlfriends did this when we were in high school. We would make these, we would get together on Valentine's and we would make these elaborate old fashioned Valentine's together. I'm pretty sure we all still have those. Um, but it was so fun to, um, just be together. Um, so they don't feel alone on Valentine's day or let's say they didn't get asked to the dance. Okay. Maybe they go with, with their girlfriends or their guy friends and just creating that as a norm of valuing people and relationships and group. Another way, um, a pitfall for a teen and their identity is seeing their sexuality as their identity. They are not who they are attracted to or excited by with hormone surging and sexual stimulation all around. Just because they feel a sexual response does not mean that this is now their identity. We get to decide how we choose to act out our sexual desires, our urges, but if we continue to make these brain connections strong by reinforcing them with a set set of stimulation uh, or stimuli, the more the more we will have a hold um, in our brain through that pathway. So if we're using something to sexually stimulate us, our brain is going to form a pathway and we are going to become more sexually stimulated by that. So again, they might be attracted um, to different <laughs> stimuli, but that doesn't mean that that is their identity. And I want to make people aware, especially with females, that uh, female porn is on the rise and it doesn't always look like straight up porn like typing in x-rated video it can look like looking at pictures of clothes and then all of a sudden they keep scrolling down on a website and all of a sudden it's getting sexual and then they scroll further and it's even more sexual and so just to be mindful that teens need help navigating um the stimuli that they're seeing online the next piece of this is also to be mindful with entertainment choices. So it's really been normalized to say, oh, I'm sad, I just wanna watch a chick flick. But that doesn't mean that we don't analyze what uh, the relationships are that are being modeled in that, in that movie. It doesn't mean that we ignore if there's inappropriate sexual content or just very mature sexual content, something that's really awoken me is the movement with um, sex trafficking and realizing at the root of sex trafficking someone is being used for someone else's sexual gratification and it's so easy for us to just stream things on our laptops in the privacy of our rooms and and exploit people for our own sexual gratification and so again this is an area not to cast judgment but um, the Lord will convict us in whatever stage of growth that we're in, but to be mindful of um, what is the content that, that my teen is watching. And maybe there's shows that don't have a lot of sexual explicit things, um, and maybe it provides for good conversation to be like, how do you think the characters handled that situation? Or how would you handle that situation? Right there, I'm not saying that we have to turn off the TV completely, but um, if there are certain shows that are just constantly drama and people being evil and mean to each other to be aware of that influence as their as the team brain is forming um trying to answer this question what is the healthy what does a relationship look like and so it's important for us to talk about um what is healthy and what is unhealthy 
Another pitfall is shame over mistakes or moral failures. So again, sometimes the teen can see themselves as the mistake. And so again, we want to help work with them on um, what is that voice of shame versus what is that voice of true guilt. And there's another handout I'm going to include in here. It's called the radio within, and it kind of helps get to the root of it. So on that handout, it'll say, who am I? My mom says, my dad says, my friends say, I say, God says, the enemy says, the world says. And I found that this exercise really helps get at the root of um, what, who the teen really believes that they are. And so we simply talk about if you were, we have over 60,000 thoughts per day. And if we are having thoughts and voices that are not helpful, I want to clarify thoughts. <laughs> if we have thoughts that are not helpful, if we have um, voices, that's, a, that's another problem. But um, if we have thoughts that are not helpful, then just like a radio station, we if there's a song that we don't like, we want to turn that song off. We want to switch it to a new channel. And so just empowering teens to know that they don't have to replay their failures and these thoughts that tell them, remind them of their failures, that they can turn to a new channel um, and hear, tune into what God says about them, what friends, loving friends and family say about them. Another pitfall is falling into the teen seeing their identity as just purely about their physical appearance. And so on Facebook, again, we can model this ourselves do we just put the best picture of us out there always do we always have to have look perfect before we have our picture taken um do we and even if we looked at our own social media do we show the elderly do we show um people that are considered maybe less attractive do do we surround ourselves and and does our do we prove um by how we live that we are not just focused on the external but we're focused on the the internal so people can look different from us they can be um, from a variety of backgrounds and um, we don't have to always look perfect because it's really about that inner inner beauty and it's okay to look pretty it's okay but it's it becomes a pitfall when the external is becomes the most important so things that the parent does to that can negatively impact the teen's identity is number one just not being a healthy role model themselves so again they don't have to be perfect but if there's areas of our life where we are not allowing god to deal with and we're not inviting accountability and healthy um healthy people in um our our teen is going to see that another pitfall adults can do is putting pressure on the teen teen to perform in school and outwardly perform so there's a big um push to look good to act good to perform well to not um to hide from others behind this perfectionist mask teens can fall into family roles where they will feel that pressure to feel perfect and they will not tell you the hard stuff. They will not say, hey, I'm really struggling in this class and I'm so afraid of failing. They're not going to say, um, hey, I did this mistake because they're going to feel the pressure that you need them to be perfect for them to be loved. 
Another thing is if a parent hasn't dealt with their own trauma and their own wounds, they might be competitive with their teen. They might be jealous of their teen. They might not be able to compliment their teen or tell them that they love them because they didn't receive that or because of hurts in their own life. So that's where it's important, again, for for us to lead in, in doing that, that self-work with God so that we can address woundings and love better than maybe that we received or experienced. Another pitfall would be if we are not allowing our teen to bond with other healthy adults. And so it's normal again in the teen years for them to slowly pull away, pull a, a little bit away from the parent. And I would say that this doesn't mean that ideally you do have traditions with your teen, you're engaging, you're talking to them, but it's normal for them to just be expanding their relationship. So that's what I mean by pulling away. And so allowing them to have, um, if you feel the person is somewhat healthy, not perfect, but somewhat healthy, um, for them to have uh, experiences with other adults. Um, so for example, if I had a teen daughter and she was telling me, oh my gosh, Mrs. Calais, my friend's mom is so amazing. And yada 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 right I want to be able to celebrate the amazingness of Miss Calais and not feel like I have to compete for my teen's affection or feel like I'm oh no I'm gonna lose my teen to Miss Calais no I keep loving my teen and showing affection and being there for them and that's that's great I can celebrate that they're bonding with another adult that's going to give them wisdom and um, insights one one last thing I want to address, a, a pitfall that parents can do, is making war with other people's sin versus making war with their own sin. So talking about what they hate about other people or other groups and um, just showing kind of disgust or disdain and not articulating why they are maybe sad that certain people are making choices or... Um, kind of showing that compassion of like, I'm sad that so-and-so is making this choice because I feel like they're deceived because according to, to scripture, this is what I see and believe and um, this is my hope for them or this is even the research on that choice or whatnot. And so just diving in deeper and really revealing hopefully a heart of grief and sorrow for that person versus saying, um, you know, I hate that or um, that condemnation that can come out in all of us. And, and so to fix this, we can be people that really identify and grieve over our own sin. And we see our shortcomings and we talk about others um, and their shortcomings with compassion and grief and care versus just condemning a people group. Sometimes we can condemn things. I've been guilty of this um, to try to keep our kids safe, quote unquote, or to avoid um, certain things. Um, but it's really revealing the heart behind it is what's going to help them, I think, think more critically about about it and be they'll be less likely to judge us and, and say, oh, my mom is just, you know, a downer, <laughs> right? They're, they're not going to be able to say that. They're going to say, my mom doesn't agree with this and here and here's why. And so we have to be aware there's just going to be things also in our world that impact our teen's identity. So that Barna study again 
uh, showed that millennials that stayed in the church were those that believe Christian can Christians can positively contribute to society, and so we want to encourage our our teens to um, to have discernment skills. Uh, a great question that was presented to me while I was at Western Seminary was, how do we know what we know? Is it because Oprah said it? <laughs> is it because a YouTuber said it? Um, what is our source? And so for me, how do I know what I know um, to be true comes from the authority of God, from, from his scripture. And so that is the lens in which I try to have lead my life. And so that is a good question. Is it how, um, Who is the authority in their life? What does their faith say about certain topics? We have to be aware that um, the injustices of our world can be overwhelming. There's tragedies and there's things that are going to make our teens say, where is our good God in all of this? They need to know what God's cleanup plan is for this world. Where that he will be a just ruler and there will be accountable for those acts of injustice that that have happened. The wrongs will be made right. I want to kind of end here with a call to action. So your teen is going to want to know the answers to these questions. Who am I? And their answer can be, you are, hopefully if they've made the choice, you are a child of God. You are loved. Who he says they are. And um, who am I? Why am I here? We want to help them answer that by seeing their unique gifts and, and talents. So your call is to admonish, to warn, to help guide, to offer hope, to share with them. My hope for you is um, to point out the good in them, to forgive them, to ask for forgiveness you are allowed to take away the phone. <laughs> if things are not being used for their proper purpose, you are allowed uh, to take your authority <laughs> and take it away, but also tell them how they will get it back. You are allowed to limit connections to dysfunctional friends and people. Um, you are allowed to you are allowed to be humble and share parts of your story when led. You are allowed to act on who you are in Christ accepting his forgiveness for your past and shortcomings. So I really hope you guys check out some of those handouts. Again, you should be able to see it down there below, or you can go to www.pristinecounseling.com. There's so much more I want to share, but I, I fear my time has run out. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this, and I pray that the teens um, around you would just motivate you um, to grow in your own relationship with God and that the overflow of your love for him will be seen by them. Thank you.